Mrs. Maisie Williams as Ara Stark. Siv Turner as Hansa Stone. Isaac Hempstead Wright as Bran Stark. Hello and welcome to Sound On Sight's Game of Thrones podcast. This is Kate Kalzik and I'm joined as ever by Mike Waldman. And this week, it's filling in for Simon, we have Sean Ingram from previously on. Guys, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's great to be here as always. Thanks for having me as a guest. So uh, now, last week, of course, we had plenty of talk, uh, Mike and I, about the, our relationship with the book series. Um, Sean, since this is your first time on the show, uh, would you let our listeners know, have, are you familiar with the books or are you just familiar with the show? I am familiar with the books. I've read the first three and am well into the fourth. Okay. Cool. Well, because I imagine we'll have plenty on that note to talk about this week. If nothing else, then the change um, of, of Asha's name to Yara is one that I'm sure some people will be concerned about. But before we get into that, I'm just curious what your guys' overall overall thoughts uh, about the episode were. So I guess, Sean, let's start with you. Uh, I thought it was excellent. I think I liked the premiere just a little more, but overall I thought it was another very good good episode and uh yeah season two is starting out really great so far cool mike uh yeah i liked it a lot um i'm uh definitely like i said last time too i i'm i'm enjoying the things that are changed and the things that are condensed if only because i don't know exactly how every scene will progress which i was worried i would be so i'm I'm enjoying that, and I'm enjoying all the casting. So far, really good casting. Yeah, I was I was particularly impressed, I would say, this week with the casting of Gemma Whalen, I would say, as, as Yara. And I, just the when she stands next to Patrick Malahide, who was playing her father, just the, the resemblance in both just the actors, but also their, their I guess that would, that would probably be the makeup, it was really striking, and I, I thought that was really great. I agree. I, I thought that... Uh... I think in general they've really cast in ways that were believable and uh, and accessible, but also like with, for instance, with Crofter or Croster, who's the half wildling guy? Is it Crofter? Croster uh, with an S. Croster, yes. Um, the casting for him is very different, very, very, very different than I imagine from the book. In the book, he's described as you know, I imagine him as sort of like a Norse caveman almost. Um, and the guy they've picked is more of like a gruff English pub guy, like a guy you wouldn't want to s- screw with in a bar in Wales or something. Um, <laughs> but, uh, <clears throat> you know, I don't think for viewer, for viewers that didn't read the book, that's a problem. And I think in general, they've done an admirable job of going with good actors over people that were, you know, drop dead representations of the people in the book. Yeah, I agree completely. I I actually listened to your first episode, and I know you you Mike despise uh, John Snow only sure because only because he's a terrible, terrible actor. That's the only reason. 
Yes, but in general, I think they do. It's a good balance. There, there are some that look almost exactly as you picture them, and there are some that look completely different. But I think in most, in almost all cases, uh, the actor uh, is the right actor for the role. Yes, absolutely. And like you said, uh, Kate, I think that um, the um, oh, who's the who's the Kraken? Uh, who's the what's his name? Um, Lord Greyjoy. Uh, Patrick Malahide. Great choice for that role. Like, he yeah. looks like I pictured Balan Greyjoy, and I think he looks like the viewers who haven't read the book would imagine he should look like. Um, I'm excited to see more of him. Well, and even even just, again, his, his costuming and his... The, just he's, he feels... He feels so perfectly suited to his introductory scene to that chair, to that room, yep. everything yeah, about him is gray. The fireplace was awesome. That was the greatest. <laughs> with, with the huge kraken over top of it. Yes. I'm going to win the lottery and build my house around a giant kraken shaped <laughs> fireplace for no reason too. Like, it's not like I'm the kraken. I'll just still be Mike Waldman. I, like, so, <laughs> but are you going to pay the iron price for your mansion? No, I will, I will pay the moderate I'll pay whatever price my, you know, wages and Jewish heritage allow me to pay, but not the iron price, that's for sure. <laughs> that's a great way to, uh, to transition into, I mean, for me, I was more mixed on this episode, I think, than either of you. Um, I had a problem with, I mean, this is one of the first times for me that just the the sex in the episode has just felt so tacked on and unnecessary um, in several scenes, but for me, the one where it really worked was our our opening with with uh with theon because he's just such a bastard <laughs> in, in that introductory scene and i know for me when i was reading the books and i got to the point where we start to finally get more um from from theon when he goes home i was really surprised because i had always had I just assumed that he was like the rest of the starks and was a pretty nice guy and you know all around pretty decent kind of person and then he's just such a bastard and i thought they really captured that i was actually looking forward to seeing the depiction of that scene because of all the reasons you just described like it i think that opens the second book that scene maybe um and uh like you said he's such a he's such a dick in it and it seems so out of nowhere and it's you know without giving away too much it's spoilers of a lot to come obviously um but uh yeah, I really liked that too. Um, although, if we're talking sex scenes, we are eventually going to have to talk about an enormous departure from the book made in this episode that has to do with a certain sex scene. Yeah. <laughs> like a massive, enormous, three-book-changing departure that might be the least sexy sex scene also in the history of the show. Do, do you want to talk about this? Well, we can, we, can, we can move it to later if you want, but I mean, the Melisander-Stannis sex scene is... That doesn't happen in the book, right? I'm not wrong. Well, it, it happens it off screen. Yeah, there's a... Um, yeah. I don't know if you... Uh, <laughs> I can't talk about this with, without ruining future events. There's, there's, I'll just say there's a, there's a Davos, or Davos chapter in book two that definitely implies that scene. I, I remember the scene you're talking about. But I don't remember making that direct connection. Either way, making that explicit, if that is, I mean, mm -hmm. we're not ruining anything. It was very explicit in this episode. Yes. Is a very, very different, is a very different choice than was made in the books. 
having yeah. them have an explicit sexual relationship is a very, very different choice than was it, made in the book. Well, let me let me ask you this. Um, as far as Renly goes, last season they made his his uh, his homosexual relationship explicit, where it isn't in the books. It's also just implied. Did you feel similarly about that last Interesting. year? Interesting. Or no? Um, that's a good point. I guess the reason I don't feel that is by the second book, that relationship is completely explicit. This relationship that they're depicting between Stannis and Melisander is never anything remotely close to explicit, even, and I've finished the fourth book, and it still isn't. Well, I would, um, say, I would argue that Renly's relationship uh, with the, the Knight of Flowers in the, in the books is just as off-screen as, as Melisandre and Stannis is. I mean, it... it, it becomes explicit I don't know. In, I, in the text in, in the in the dialogue of the characters but you never see anything and i f that's feel like that's similar i think it's a little more out there than uh the stannis thing oh, okay but yeah it, it it's true that there's never an explicit uh an explicit scene uh in the books i don't think but in the second book, they do, you know, there are scenes depicting them talking and clearly having that relationship, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Even if there isn't an explicit, like, sexual scene. Just the, the Melisandre thing, I thought, I just, I thought that, was, that was the first thing I've seen on the show that was, I thought, somewhat of a significant departure from the books. Yeah. If only, if only, and it might just be like you said last week, Kate, uh, uh, one of the many, many examples of scenes that are just sort of condensing things um, and make me... Like we talked about, a lot of stuff is going to have to be spoon-fed more than the book simply because he takes a really long time in the book. Sometimes relationship takes 800 pages to develop. And that's just not going to be possible with the same story arcs that are demanded by, like, episodic television. Yeah, I think for me, I I really liked the, the method that they, that he, um, George R. R. Martin used in the book to to display that relationship between Stannis and Melisandre, if only because to me, Melisandre is more threatening if she's not as understandable, if it's not so clear what her motives and how and, and manipulations are, if it's not so blatant of how she is able to get this control over, over Stannis um, and to direct his attentions and his thoughts. And so, I mean, we'll have to just see where it goes, but for me, it, it was just so explicit in a way that I feel like Game of Thrones is usually much more nuanced. I totally agree. I think that's what I mean, too. Like, I think it's a major departure to make her, like, a seductress, because in the books, she's, you're like, she right, she's so much more than that, and that makes her much more threatening because it's ambiguous how she's maintaining this control. Yeah. I, I will say, though, that my problem is not that something is changed from the book. I don't care if it's oh, no, changed no, no, from the book as long as it's done well. It it felt a little ham fisted this week, but who knows? Maybe they'll maybe this is just, you know, state step one of where this relationship is going to go and, and a necessary step. Well I would agree with that. And I you know, I'm not my issue isn't with alterations to the book. I just I thought that was interesting because it was the first one. Yeah. And like you said, because it's a much more um blunt uh, demonstration of their relationship than was developed in the books. Yeah. When we talk about scenes being condensed, though, one of the changes that I really appreciated was how quickly they cut through all of the airy stuff with Arya and Gendry. Just got it and taking it immediately to 
of course you're a girl. I'm not an idiot. Um, and so I really enjoyed the, the scenes with them on, on the road up to the wall. What did you guys think of those scenes? Uh, I, I like them a lot. Yeah, actually. Yeah. And, um, it, it, it's interesting to me. I like what they're doing with the, the sort of timeline They're like most of these scenes exist in the book in some form or another, but the presentation and sometimes the, the, the timeline of events is a little altered. And I think, uh, it's working really well. I think these, these guys understand the, the way TV works and how they need to, you know, parse out story in, in different ways. So, yeah, so I think, I think maybe I was, uh, uh before this season, like most fans of the book, you know, you're always worried about how they're going to, how they're going to get through all this story in 10 episodes. But I think, uh, with the way they're going so far that, uh, I'm not, I'm not as worried as I might've been. Well, and like I said before, to be as a, somebody who's read the books and stuff, it makes it a little bit more exciting for you, I think, as a viewer, because the scenes are new. Like the, the condensing is going to be for the better, for the worse. And a lot of the times, you know, like we talked about last time, people that haven't read the books, it can't be understated how laboriously long they are. Like that's not to say that they're yeah. a chore because they're page turners, but George R. R. Martin clearly has no editor that's willing to say, like, maybe this relationship could be developed in 130 pages instead of 400 pages. Right. Um, but things are developed very slowly. So as people that read the books, we're going to like some of it. We're not going to like some of it. But for me, the fun part has been not knowing what this scene would entail verbatim, like I did in the first season. Um, now when a scene starts, I don't know what it's going to be necessarily. I have the abstract idea, and most of the big events are there. But, you know, like you said, Kate, it was it was an interesting moment where he cut right through that, and he just said, like, of course you're a girl. And I was like, oh, okay, we're already here in this story. Like... And because the stories run non-consecutively, like they run alongside each other, you can jump hundreds of pages ahead to catch up constantly. It's going to be interesting. It must be a nightmare to manage all this. <laughs> I don't know how they... They must have a storyboard that looks like a schizophrenic serial killer. Like, just I, thousands of threads. Well, definitely threads tied around little push pins. I don't know why that seems to help, but if I'm to believe any movie ever about conspiracy <laughs> theories and intricate plots, there has to be thread. It's true. There has literally thread, like to outline the phrase threads, like threads on the internet. It's a little yeah. on the nose. <laughs> so now we know what Kate's serial killer board looks like. Apparently. <laughs> what did you guys think? To my memory, there is no. Okay, so this episode ends with a bit of a cliffhanger. And to my memory, there's no oh, yeah. scene like that in the books at all. I so wanted to talk about that. that? There's, uh, they're, they're introducing the White Walkers or the Others, whatever you want yeah. to call them, way earlier, way earlier. And there's no scene where he puts a baby in the woods or anything like that. Like, it's nothing's right. ever that explicit. So I feel like, okay, so for people who, who don't know, without putting any too much spoilers, like, the stuff north of the wall, like everything else in the book, develops incredibly slowly. Like, incredibly slowly. Like, literally over thousands of pages. Um, so I feel like they're going to abandon the book structure in a lot of these threads. And because <clears throat> if from what I've seen, the cliffhanger is any indication, we're already at a point where there are like book three, you know, in some sense. So I, I wonder, like, are they going to bypass whole scenes? Are they going to introduce those things 
books earlier. What do you What do you think, Kate? Well, I'm I'm curious because uh, maybe I'm just remembering this incorrectly, but I thought that it was discussed and revealed in around this time that the the male children were being abandoned in the woods for the walkers. There's an but, it's implied by um, the. Uh, I forget the name of the one of one of his wives. Gilly. Who, yeah. Yes. Who is pregnant, and she implies that if her her child is a boy, then something like this will happen. But it's not really discussed. Yeah. So again, I guess it's it's an example of the the TV version making something a little more explicit than it is in the books. At least at this point in the books, anyway. Well, and it's also using the medium to show, not tell. So in the book, yes, exactly. they discuss it, and here in in the TV show, you see it. Yes, it's not a bad thing. I didn't. I, I'm actually not. I'm actually a fan of it. I'm not criticizing <laughs> uh, if I came off that way. Oh no, no. I'm, no. Ac- I'm actually. I like the idea. I like the choice too. I think it's exciting. Um, I just wonder, like. They do mention it in the books, but that's very different than one of the main characters, like Jon Snow, actually going out and seeing something. Well, yeah. and especially uh, with Craster knocking him out. Right. I think that they're going to gloss. The, in my experience, cliffhangers like that are usually glossed over. Like, <laughs> I imagine them just starting the episode with him having like woken up and like brought him back to the camp because he was saving him, kind of thing. You know, I, I, yeah. I, I those but, usually get sort of if if not, then if not, but. He he basically sees one of the walkers from the first episode of the first season, you know, mm-hmm. um, and nobody sees those in the books for another fifteen hundred pages. Yeah. Uh, so that's just a big choice, you know. Like, and I think they are going to make a lot of choices like that. I mean, speaking of the uh, the the wall, I again, I'm not sure exactly where this happens in the book, but it was nice to see, and it felt like a little bit of a change um, for Tyrion when we're in, in King's Landing to see the message from the wall coming there and they skip over the hand and they skip over um, that. But to, but to see Tyrion's defense, however um, however little fight that he puts up against Cersei about the, that topic, but to see his um, consideration of the the possibilities beyond the wall, I thought was was interesting and a nice touch. Is that in the book at that point, if you guys can remind me. Uh, he offers a defense of Jorah Mormont. Not Jorah Mormont, um, the Mormont at the Wall, Jorah's father. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the book. But I don't think that scene is explicitly there. Yeah, I, I, I think it's, uh, it's actually kind of sad. When I was reading the book, it took me forever to piece together that the Mormont at the wall was related I, to the Mormont. I didn't put that together waste. until the first episode. I'm even more embarrassed after four books. I never put it together. Yeah. I'm I, an idiot. <laughs> I finally figured it out when they started talking about the sigil and with the, you know, so Jon Snow has Sir Jorah's sword, basically. Yeah. But did they say that in the books at any point? You, I, they mentioned it. They, I think, I think Jorah, down with talking with Danny, mentions that his father is at the wall or something like that, and that's how it comes up. But yeah, <laughs> I never put that together. Although, to our defense, by the time you read three or four books, there are literally seven five seventy five thousand characters. Like, it can't, it can't be overstated. The sheer volume and weight I'm, of characters. I'm sure it's in the appendix somewhere. <laughs> uh, 
Which it is, is an appendix book. Just the, the, yes. the sheer number of characters, I think, uh, is part of why I, th I thought it was so smart to rename um, Asha Yara to, mm -hmm. to go back to that. Just because I was look, you know, looking at, at this earlier and was reminded that, of course, there's Osha who is hanging out with Bran. And then because I was thinking Asha Arya, well, I guess it's not that different. But then I remember that there's Osha as well. And it's just too many characters with with the same names so keeping them all straight i don't a bit of a gargantuan task yeah the, the tv show the tv show has sort of uh gotten rid of some characters and it still probably has the largest recurring cast on television right now <laughs> yeah you're right there there's literally seven Seventy-five thousand characters. Well, just imagine once they hit the th again without giving anything away. Once they hit the third or fourth season, and they open up other parts of the world that we all know are coming. Yeah. The, the sheer volume of characters and settings and costumes. I mean, it, it's already the most expensive TV show ever made. I it it better do well because the budget is almost unlimited. Like they could be spending just obscene amounts of money on every scene. Well. When we talk about the the cast, there is one other uh, new character and actor that I wanted to mention, and that's uh, Salad Hassan, played by Lucien Masmati, who I loved in the number one ladies detective agency for its oh so short one season run. Um, so it was, I thought that was just such a fun character. It's such entertaining casting, and so I really am looking forward to that. Just wanted to mention that. Did you picture yeah. him as a, as as of African descent when you read the books? Yep. I pictured him as um it's funny, I never I, I never even gave it any thought in the books. It's, it was a great decision. Like he uh he really commands the role right away. As soon as you see him, you're like, Oh, this is a guy that's gonna be very that's gonna be fun to have around for, for you know, as long as he lasts. Yeah, absolutely. Um, let's talk a bit about the the goings on in in King's Landing because of course I mean we're such fans of Peter Dinklage but he gets a lot of of fun things to play. I loved his scene with uh, the scene with Tyrion and Varys and just getting that in in immediate contrast between Tyrion as Hand of the King and Ned Stark as Hand of the King. Yeah, uh, I, yeah, I agree. Tyrion is. I mean, I I don't think I'm going out on a limb to say he's one of my favorite characters. Mm -hmm. And yeah, in particular, I love that scene. And one of the things I like about Tyrion is that I, I already I forget the exact line he has um, in that exchange, but he he says that he has no honor, unlike Ned Stark. But that's not really true. He has I don't know if he's honorable, but he has some kind of uh, code or or standard that he that he deals with people that he lives by. Mm -hmm. um, and that's one of the things that makes him such an interesting character. I think. I actually think that Tyrion in most ways has the most honor, at least the most, what we would consider morality of anybody in the books. I think that's why, you know, for people that haven't read the books, he's, he's pretty much, he's one of the most re compelling, regularly reoccurring chapter characters. Um, and I think he's the most modern, the most liberal sort of person in the in the books in the whole story, and I think that's why we like him, why we relate to him. Because, I mean, whatever morality is associated with Westeros is not especially moral by what we would consider moral standards now. I mean, you know, 
beheading people and raping women constantly, regardless of your cause, is probably not something that's going to earn you a morality badge, regardless of what side you do it for now. But um, I think he's definitely the most modern character. And, um, and like I said, as a result, the most relatable. And thank God they got such an incredible... Well, what are the odds of getting somebody, you know, Peter Dinklage is so talented, but, you know, so much of the series resides on getting, you know, a dwarf actor who is so incredibly talented that he can carry the most compelling character in the show. Well, and he doesn't fit the description of Tyrion. No, Tyrion's at hideous. all. Tyrion's hideous. Tyrion and looks nothing like Peter Dinklage. Peter Dinklage is sexy. Like <laughs> Peter Dinklage is an attractive <laughs> man. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, and for for Tyrion, it's interesting because he does have a clear moral code in early on, and it which is family before all else. Family, I would say, for him, and that becomes increasingly. Let's, let's just say explored over the course of the later books and it becomes more complicated and interesting and yeah. and yeah it's it's just it's so um i do think that that especially with ned gone now Tyrion is the focus but i love that that he he abhors the the murder of the children but he doesn't say it's the wrong thing to do he says it was done in the wrong way but he doesn't deny that it helps Joffrey's claim. Well, that's true. I mean, that's, I think, what makes him such a believable character, too, is that if they made him too modern and too liberal, it wouldn't be, he wouldn't fit the world. He's so pragmatic enough and still enough of a Lannister to understand the realities of things. I think Tyrion's a realist. I think that's, you know, a part of his relatability, too. You know, he doesn't really care about what side he's on. He just needs that side to win, necessarily. Um... We also haven't talked. Who's the name of the actor that plays his father? Tyra Charles Lester. Dance. He's he's so so close to being my favorite character on the show right now. I love him in the books, but he is so such an amazing casting decision that every time he's on screen, I'm excited. It doesn't matter what they're talking about. He's yeah, amazing. I, I hope he pops up soon because I, I agree. He's he was fantastic in the first season. Well, and you just watching um, Justified this season with uh, talking about it with Simon on the Televerse podcast, which is for those who don't know, Sound On Sight's TV podcast that I, I run with, I host with Simon. Um, there, they had a scene that of uh, a, a main villainous character butchering a pig with a knife in a, a very similar manner to the scene from season one with the deer, and it just was so. It didn't matter how good that scene in Justified was. It didn't hold a candle to the, the scene in, from, from Game of Thrones last season. So, uh, yeah, he's a very, very memorable character for having received such little screen time. What, you know, what I think is interesting with that is we've seen so little of, of that character. But what I find interesting is he's incredibly strong. That character's incredibly, incredibly strong presence in the show just based on the relationship between Cersei and Tyrion. And so I thought it was uh, interesting that they brought the mother in uh, to that this season with that memorable scene between Cersei and Tyrion at the end. At the first time I watched the episode, I didn't like it. I, I felt like it was not particularly well handled and that um, particularly I wasn't a big fan of of Lena Headey's performance of, of her you know, scene closing speech. But then I was watching it again with, with uh, my sister and I think the second time through it really worked for me. I'm curious, I'm curious if you guys had a similar reaction 
Uh, no. <laughs> no, I mean, yeah, like I said, it, it wasn't quite as good as the premiere, but I, yeah, there was, there's a lot to like, and yeah, I liked it uh, pretty well on the first watch, although I, I did actually watch it twice. I liked it a lot. I thought it was great. Uh, I mean, I think that, uh, I think that she's really building her performance a lot, actually, and I think I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying seeing her more and more. Yeah, I keep hearing good things about her performance in uh, Terminator, Sarah Connor Chronicles, and the, I think I the more yeah. I, I enjoy You're hearing her... good things about something from Terminator, Sarah Sarah Connor Chronicles. Yes, yes, yeah, that's, I had some good people on it. Yeah, I, I got I did my um, TV did Warrior Women list. She played Sarah Connor. Oh no, shit! I know. <laughs> really, that's interesting. Okay, I yeah. So, so you know, I yeah I did a, a Warrior Woman list for Sunset Sight and got several uh comments back uh that that i should have had terminator on there just for for the strong women on that show um but actually speaking of comments i wanted to mention we got some comments on our podcast last week and one in particular that i thought we should talk about which was um from matt about your comment mike last week about how you feel like george r r martin hates women and i know this is a uh a, a issue that some people feel strongly about or actually I would most love people... to talk about that all it's a contentious season. topic it's yeah. A, yeah um so yeah I I you know Matt disagreed with your take and most and mostly is, is what he said was that George R. R. Martin just hates everyone <laughs> not just women but I'm curious what you have to say to that uh well like I said I'm happy to talk about that all season I've that's been one of my most one of the things I've talked with people most about uh, in reference to the book, um, I agree. One of the things George R. R. Martin does, and without, again, and giving anything away, um, you know, if the only consistent law in physics is a move to, from order to disorder, that's certainly the trend in the book. Um, basically, any any plans and any plans that are made as a result of those plans failing and et cetera, et cetera, always go wrong and things just get worse. That being said, um, George R. R. Martin uh, has an absolute fixation uh, with rape and an intense level of misogyny. And people say, well, that fits this world and stuff. And that's true. Uh, to some degree, you know, you're creating a pseudo-medieval universe with the same sort of social conventions that existed back then. Nonetheless, the, you're, you're, the volume and focus are up to you as an author. And Again, without any spoilers, by the third or fourth book, it's essentially a non-stop rape fantasy that just gets worse and worse and worse and starts involving such intensely, unnecessarily, vilely misogynistic things. Um, one character in particular that I think we all know um, with the name of an Egyptian god, um, the stuff involving him is so un- so unimportant and so unnecessary in its vileness. Um, that that level of villainy could easily be created without skinning raped women. Um, it's just it's so unnecessary. So, to to people that disagree with me, I'm 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 you know happy to be disagreed with. But in my opinion, George R. R. Martin takes a level like a, a fixated level of misogynistic rape fantasies to to such a new and constant heights in his book that. I can't help but get over the idea that he, that he in and of himself, without even considering it, maybe has some very serious issues with women. 
That's interesting. Um, I mean, I can see where you're coming from. Uh, definitely. It, it's a tough, it can be a tough read, um, certain parts of, of the books. I don't see that. I mean, I, obviously, there are some very troubling things that happen that characters refer to. There's several incredibly memorable and an unfortunate kind of way uh, sequences that at least the one the most memorable ones for me are the ones that um, don't happen to anyone we know um, and are, are stories that we hear about later. Um, but I, I think he also has incredibly powerful women, incredibly strong women. And I, and he has terrible things happen to men too. So I, I agree. I, I don't see, I don't know that I would say that he hates women. I, I, I think that he has a lot of really prominent and powerful women in his story. And part of, you know, what way he chooses to put them into danger or to talk about the, the threat that, they face is the unfortunately real threat of being raped which particularly in a if you're looking at a medieval setting that's going to be unfortunately common I, I would agree my problem is is that his idea of depicting strong women i feel come in three molds strong women are either um, manipulative and as a result strong but loathed and you as a viewer or a reader i think are expected to uh, take a visceral pleasure in how awful they are for manipulate for manipulating their position. That's one form of power, like Cersei and stuff. There are women who act like violent men, and as a result, are supposed to be praised because they are essentially taking on all of the same things that we value in violent, misogynistic men, except they happen to be women. Um, and then there are the very odd character like Green, who we haven't met yet, um, who he tempers even though she's very close to just being a violent man she isn't but they temper he tempers her by making her abominably ugly um so i i really have a problem with his depiction of strong women because i feel that they're ultimately either always sexualized or judged in a context of sexualization interesting sean do you have any thoughts on the issue or are you staying out of this one <laughs> <laughs> no i you know not to be uh, pedantic, but I I have thoughts on it, but I, I don't want to get into it since this is about the show mm -hmm. um, rather than the books. Not to not to, not to cut off the discussion, but uh, I'd rather talk about how the the show you know uh, deals with these issues mm -hmm. rather than uh, the books. No, actually, no, that's, it's a, it's a good that's point. okay with you. No, no, absolutely. I, it's a Game of Thrones TV show podcast, not book, and you're absolutely right. I actually think the book for me, the movie, the show for me is doing it better. And I think actually maybe the limits of certain forms of censorship are, I mean, they're not going to be able to depict a nearly constant flow of rape by, you know, the third or fourth season. Um, and I think maybe that, you know, by as a byproduct will be for the better, just for me. It might, it might make things a little less... I don't know, the focus a little less uncomfortable. Yeah, I don't know that anyone would want to watch a television show with, <laughs> with a steady stream of rapists. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And I mean, literally, like I, like I said, I think we all know that there are certain characters where practically nothing they do will be able to be depicted as it is in the book. 
Yeah. Well, we'll have to see how they handle that that down down the line. I guess my final uh, my final thing will be uh, for, first of all, I wanted to mention that the the paint on the horse that uh, comes back with Daenerys's blood riders head was incredibly awesome. Yeah, totally awesome. <laughs> yeah. Very I, thought, I mean, th- those scenes were a little um, not melodramatic, but uh, a little. You can say melodramatic. It's okay. Well, I but I don't mean melodramatic, <laughs> which is why I'm not saying it. But uh, considering how condensed so many of the other storylines are, I thought it was an interesting choice to 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 not condense um, her time waiting in the in the desert. Um, so I thought that was interesting, and maybe it's just it's a fact due to not having enough time in an ep- in the episode. Like we didn't get any uh, of of Cat on her way to to. Renly's so certain storylines just can't be in every episode um, but I just wanted to mention that because the horse looks so freaking sweet um, and then I, I I also just wanted to note that uh, for me there was just I, I thought all of the the extraneous sex in, in this episode that didn't have a, a narrative purpose for example the sequence in Littlefinger's brothel which I felt maybe um, a little tawdry yeah, no, it's not. There's some elements about that scene that I can't tell. I mean, I feel like maybe it's supposed to be okay. Never, I'm not going to say anything else <laughs> because I'm worried about getting into spoiler territory. Well, you know, <laughs> I, in that in that scene, there's a it's like a dual peep show scene, mm-hmm. and I thought there might be some sort of subtext about. Uh, viewer as voyeur but i don't know <laughs> if they're going to expand on that or if it was just uh just a i don't know like a quick joke or something yeah uh i'm, I'm not sure but i thought it was interesting that now that we can't have the twin cest they still managed <laughs> to put in some some uh incest with uh theon feeling of his sister uh, to even potentially a higher degree than in the than in the book, which I thought was interesting, but also kind of hilarious. I, I think the uh, I I remember wondering what they were going to do with that scene because I remembered it from the book, and uh, yeah, like you said, if if anything, it might have even been a little bit more than what was in the book. Um, I'm really looking forward to her. By the way, I think that's good casting, and she seems appropriate for the role, and. Uh, She's a, a character I really liked in the books, so I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing more of her. Um, what, did it, what did you guys think of the castles, by the way? I've been meaning to mention that. I think they've been doing a really great job of the, you know, like the little bit of blue screening effect, I guess they're doing when people, when everybody, co- and when anybody ever comes to a castle, you see it in the background. Um, and so far they've looked great. Like this week, um, what's Balon Greyjoy's castle called? Pike. Pike looked fantastic, I thought. Yeah, I was about to mention that when you brought up castles. Yeah, I thought Pike in particular was pretty pretty awesome. I, I like the way that they've really established the personality personality of each of these areas and how they so strongly shape the people who live there. Absolutely. And I mean that's that's in the books, but the the actual conceptual conceptualization of, of these different locations have been wonderful and the the effects getting to there i the the cg of 
of of um, the Iron Islands as as Theon approaches is fantastic. I will also mention that once again the direwolves look awesome. Ghost was fantastic this week. It's so nice to see them their full size. Yeah, I think that's an improvement over season one for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And they're going to need to continue to put more money into those effects with the dragons uh, as the dragons get bigger and bigger. You know, that's <clears throat> that's definitely going to be more of a concern, but. It's yeah. great. It certainly looks like HBO is willing to put the money into it, and I think they're dedicated to making this their next big, you know, season show for the next several seasons. So, I think that's good news for viewers. Absolutely. Um, do you guys have any final thoughts, uh, Sean? Uh, I I wanted to. I guess we sort of went over it. Um, but as far as sort of cutting characters, um, it doesn't look like the um. Shoot, can you guys help me? The name of the um, the two younger characters at uh, at Winterfell. You mean the the Reeds? Yeah. Yes, it looks. It seems like they've cut them and sort of. Oh no, uh, they wouldn't come push, yet. Huh? They wouldn't have come yet. You mean the frog people? Oh well, okay. Well, there's a scene in this episode where Osha seems to have some of their. Uh, oh no, that happens before. Dialogue. In the books, there is a scene, that scene with Osha is depicted. And then later on, the reeds confirm that intuition. I see. Okay. So they haven't necessarily been cut yet. That happens a little bit later. Okay. Um, to, to my memory, I mean, I because they they're an integral part of many, many right. events later. Right. I was wondering about that. But, yeah, if they're still to come, then it's not an issue. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, Mike, any final thoughts? Uh, I like Game of Thrones, the television show, and people should watch it if they're not already. Absolutely. Well, it keeps doing really well for HBO, so they can't really ask for much better. I think everyone on the Internet is watching Game of Thrones. <laughs> if, you're not, if you're listening to episode two of a podcast of season two of Game of Thrones, you should start watching Game of Thrones. Probably. That would make sense. <laughs> you're wasting the, the... Your time. Stop wasting your time. They would be spoiled for our discussion, though. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Now you already know what happens. See, you're wasting everything. Go watch the show. <laughs> so, Sean, where can our, our listeners find you? They can find me at previouslyon.com, or they can email previouslyon at gmail.com, or find me on Twitter. It's previously on show without the W. And then, of course, previously on is... Oh, yeah, I should have mentioned that. <laughs> Previously on is a television discussion podcast that I co-host with David Bax from Battleship Pretension, the uh, movie discussion podcast. And we sort of talk about uh, TV of the – it's a weekly show, and we talk about TV of the past week and some TV news. And every week we pick one show to sort of talk about uh, at length, in depth. Well, and it's mostly spoiler-free at this point. Yeah, we just sort of switched formats a little bit. And, yeah, it's mostly spoiler-free except for the, the final segment, which is the in-depth discussion. So, yeah, and that's uh, that's all the normal places, iTunes, uh, Zoom Shop, if that still exists. <laughs> yeah, good times. Okay, Mike, where can, uh, of course, where can people find you? Um, <clears throat> I'm an elementary school teacher, so people should not try to find me. That would not be appropriate. <laughs> Um, I write occasionally for Sound on Sites and do documentary reviews, so people can uh, can check me out there if you're interested. 
good times. And of course, I'm at the Televerse on Twitter. You can feel free to drop us a line, drop me a line. Uh, you can email uh, the Televerse at gmail.com, or of course, we'll have a post up for this at soundoside.org. Please leave us comments. Let us know what you thought about the episode. What where you weigh in on this uh, George R. R. Martin debate discussion, uh, which I look forward to. Hopefully, a nice flame war starting up at the website. I think that would be fun. Um, <laughs> have you guys had one of those yet? I don't think so. Uh, we were attacked by the crazy lady that uh, s- the subject of Errol Morris's documentary tabloid, but she pretended really? to be her own lawyer. So crazy lady, uh, call us back and, and <laughs> pretend to be your own lawyer. Good times. Um, it was good times. <laughs> good times. So, um, of course, the music at the beginning of, of the podcast was the oh, so adorable uh uh, take on the Game of Thrones theme song as sung by Isaac Hempstead Wright, Maisie Williams, and Sophie Turner, who are play the uh, the the three middle Stark children, and that's from the one of the commentaries in the season one DVD set. And now we're going to send it out with "Tired of Sex" by Weezer. Okay, May a little, little bit of my take <laughs> on the episode. So we'll be back next week with our thoughts on episode three. Thanks for listening. Wednesday night, I'm making a judgment. No, why can't I be?